So we're going to have our reading now. So it's John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been, brought, been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give God glory by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Well, good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all today. Keep your Bibles open in front of you this morning. We're going to be working through this amazing story in John's Gospel. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels because I just love this man born blind and his courage in telling his story. I wonder... What was the most amazing thing you did as a teenager? Now, for some of you, I realize you are either just approaching your teens or you are in your teens. So maybe you're still wondering, what is the most amazing thing I might yet do as a teenager? I wonder, are you aiming at global stardom as a rock star or a sports star or a film star or a global influencer or a winner on a future series of the traitors. I don't know where you're aiming your future. For someone like me, it was a long time ago. I'm exactly, I'm going to keep embarrassing Isaac today. I've decided because this is last Sunday here before he goes back to uni. I'm going to lean on him heavily this morning. I'm exactly 30 years older than Isaac. So my teenage years are 30 years behind me. And looking back, I can see this. I was very ordinary. I played bass in a band that never got further than the school hall. I can't even remember if we got as far as having a name. We were that fledgling. Uh, I also starred in a film. For those of you old enough, do you remember B-movies? Do you remember? They used to be the main thing you went to see, and instead of just adverts, there would be a short film beforehand that you had to sit through before you got to Ghostbusters or whatever else it was. Well, I was in a competition to be in a B-movie. And uh, the plot was simple. I was a naughty boy who pulled a gun on his teacher. It's very exciting. And I love playing the part, but we didn't even get to make it as a B-movie. We got through several rounds. We were on television late one night, but we never got to go around the cinema with our film. So that failed. And sport? Well, look at me. <laughs> uh, I played rugby, actually, when I was 13, because I was this height. And pretty much, I was a bit thinner, but I was this size, more or less. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be huge. You know, I'm going to be a giant. And so I started off at this size, for those of you who know the game, in the second row. 
There I was, second tallest boy in the year, crammed into the scrum. I thought, I'm going to be huge. And then I never grew another centimeter, ever. So I went smaller and smaller and smaller from the A team to the rugby B team. And the only position I could play was prop because nobody wanted to be one. And so that was it. That was all that was left for me in my rugby career. And once I came to uni, I never did a thing. And all the other things I mentioned didn't exist when I was a teenager. I saw the internet for the first time when I was 18 years old at Bristol University, and I thought, email? Nah, it'll never catch on. So, that was my childhood, thoroughly ordinary. But when we read John's Gospel, when we look at this Gospel, we are looking at the memories and the eyewitness accounts of a teenager who was truly remarkable. And he was remarkable because of who he got to know. His life started off very ordinary. He went fishing in his dad's business. That's just what his dad did, so that's what he did. But one day when he was fishing, a teacher, a rabbi called Jesus, looked him in the eye and said, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And John believed him. And his dad, Zebedee, led him out of work for three years to go and travel with Jesus. And he saw the amazing miracles Jesus did. And he heard the amazing things that Jesus taught. And then at the end of the three years, when all the other disciples fled, John stood and he watched Jesus, whom he loved, nailed to the cross. And he saw him die. He saw the spear put into Jesus' side. And he saw the water and the blood flow from the one he loved. And he thought he was gone. He thought the one he loved was dead. And then the most amazing thing happened. While he and his friends were all in hiding, some women who knew Jesus came running into the room and said, the tomb's empty, his body's not there. And John and Peter, who was much older than him, ran to the tomb. And because John was fitter than Peter, he got there first. And he went in and the body of Jesus was gone. And gradually came to realize that the most amazing miracle of all had happened that Jesus Christ had come into this world to die and to conquer death. And they saw him risen from the grave. The Jesus who died was alive. And John saw all these things as a teenager, as a young man. And then he lived a very long life. And as he got older, he suddenly realized, hang on a sec, Jesus might not come back before I die. And I don't want these memories, these stories that I have of Jesus to be lost. And so he wrote them down for us. He wrote them down so that 2,000 years on, more or less, people like you and me could read the things that he saw and make up our own minds. Did these things really happen? And if they did, what difference do they make to my life? That's what you should be thinking every week when you come here. Did these things really happen? And if they did, what difference does it make to my life? And so today we're going to look at part of his evidence. John explains why he wrote his gospel. He doesn't leave us in any doubt. Towards the end in chapter 20, 
John says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John says is he doesn't want us to have blind faith. He doesn't want us to leap into the dark. He doesn't want us to think that God is unknowable. He's saying, I'm going to give you evidence, reasons why you should believe that Jesus was everything he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Christ, God's special, once forever chosen king, promised a thousand years before he came. You should believe that. You should believe he's the son of God, unique, God almighty in human form. And from that deep trust, that life-transforming trust in him, you can have a new kind of life, fullness of life, that's completely different to before you knew him, and there is nothing better, nothing more amazing than putting your life in his hands and then living for him. That's what he wants, and that's why we're studying this here. This isn't a club. This isn't school. This is about life. This is about real, everlasting, wonderful life that begins now and carries on forever. And we want to explore that a bit more here this morning in this amazing story of Jesus healing a man born blind. The way we're going to do this, we're going to follow a pattern that actually comes really out of John's introductory chapter. John always presents evidence and then there's reactions. And in his introduction, John said these things in chapter 1 of his gospel. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And what we're going to see in this chapter is Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then we're going to see some reactions, four of them. John says he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. We're going to see that the blind man's neighbors, those he lived amongst, were absolutely clueless as to what had happened to this guy. Then John says in his introduction, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And we're going to see that although the parents of this blind man knew something amazing had happened, even though it seems they knew it had something to do with Jesus, they were spineless. They were cowardly. They wouldn't say a word, even though it was their son who was healed. They didn't want any part of the mess that he'd gotten himself into. They were cowardly. And the Pharisees themselves, the religious authorities, the religious mafia, well, they were ruthless in their dealings with Jesus. But at the end of that introductory paragraph, John says these amazing words. Yet to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of a natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And we're going to see this blind man's journey from knowing nothing about Jesus. You may be here this morning and feel, I just don't know anything. Well, you're with the blind man at the beginning. He didn't know anything about Jesus. But by the end, this man is born again and a child of God and safe for all eternity. That's the journey we're going to go on this morning. We're going to look at the evidence. Jesus heals a man born blind and four reactions. The blind man's neighbors are clueless. The blind man's parents are spineless. 
The Pharisees are ruthless, and the blind man himself, well, he's utterly fearless. He is one of my heroes of faith, and I'll tell you why once we get there. So let's look at the evidence. Do you see Jesus in this? Jesus heals a man born blind. Jesus had been teaching in the temple, the festival of tabernacles. He leaves, and outside there are beggars. You know, like if you're in Broadmead or outside Asda, you see people begging. In that culture, usually they have a disability of some kind, and they're there just asking for help. There's no social services, there's no welfare. If you want to eat, you beg. And if people give you stuff, you can buy food, and if they don't, well, you're going to starve. So those are your options, and probably every day of his life, being born blind, this boy and now man has been begging. That's been his life. And his disciples see him, and they decide it's time for a theological lesson. They point at the guy and say, whose fault is it he's blind, his or his mum and dad? I think a lot of people think life works that way, don't they? That if you're good, good things happen to you. That's what the the disciples kind of say. We can all see. We're all able-bodied. We're all fighting fit. We must be the good guys. This this guy down here, begging, what's he done wrong? Is it his fault or his mum or dad's that he was born blind? And I love Jesus' reaction, don't you? He says, "You, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. He might as well say, lads, we're not Hindus. We don't believe in karma. We don't. We're Jews. We worship a God of grace and amazing power. And the reason this guy was born blind is so that God's glory would be seen in his life. His glory would be seen. You know, that is so important for us to get our heads around, isn't it? It's really easy for us to look down on people. It's very easy for us to judge people. It's very easy for us actually to pity people even, and not in a good way. Haven't we all learned as a church family that we see the glory of God uniquely displayed in people who are disabled? Haven't we? Do you remember Sonia? I do. I still miss Sonia. And I know you do very much. Why? Because the glory of God was uniquely displayed in her. And the fact that she is in glory now, fully restored, doesn't diminish the impact she had on my life. God's glory is seen in our suffering. One of the things that makes the prosperity gospel that says if you get everything you want, if you're rich and healthy, you have a great house and a great car, such a dangerous and deadly gospel is it denies the reality. The reality of faith is when we suffer, God's glory is seen. I want to say that very carefully here this morning. Around this room, there are people who have had the worst news of their lives this week, heroically, They are here this morning. But I want to say that God's glory is uniquely seen as we suffer. And as we show to the world that our faith isn't based on money. And it's not based on our career. And it's not based on our house. And it's not even based on our health. It's based on a hope that nothing can take away. A hope that cancer cannot touch. A hope that disability 
cannot rob us of, something that in old age becomes more precious, even as our future seems to lie behind us, the world we say, no way, my best years are still before me. That is where the glory of Christ is seen, and false teachers rob us of that glory. We sometimes like to feel our lives would be more glorifying to Jesus if we got all our ducks in a row and we were successful and healthy and doing well. No. We glorify God in the midst of our struggles when we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're enough for me and I love you with all of my heart. And even if I never get better, even if life remains a struggle, I will love you and witness to you before a watching world. You're the light in my heart, the darkness in the tunnel of my life and I love you. And Jesus then reaches out to this guy. We don't even know if he's really expecting anything. She doesn't ask Jesus to do anything, and Jesus doesn't even ask him. Jesus does an unusual healing. It's a bit gross, isn't it? But it's great once you understand what he's doing. He spits on the ground. Don't all do this now, all right? He spits on the ground into the mud, and he reaches down, and he makes some clay. This should be starting to ring some bells for those of you who know your Bibles well. How did God make the first human being? From the dust of the earth out of clay. And he looks at the part of the man that isn't working and he spreads clay over the man's eyes. And then he gives him a moment we're going to come back to at the end. He tells him where to go. He tells him to go and wash in a certain pool. And he goes, and as he washes and he comes out of the water, the man can see. And if this was a made-up story, we know what happens next, right? Everyone goes, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. I want to put my faith and my trust in you. You're God Almighty. I see you're the Messiah. I see you're the Son of God. I believe, and I want to have life in your name. And we can all go home at 12.35. But it doesn't say that, does it? There are four reactions here. And the same hearts that are behind those reactions there are at work in this room. The first one is the man's neighbors. They are utterly clueless as to what's happened to this guy. In verse 8 it says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed he was and said, Others said, No, he, only, he looks like him. But he himself said, I am the man. So initially they're like, is it really him? He looks so different and he can see. Are we sure we got the same bloke? And he says, yes, I am. And they say, well, how were your eyes open? He said, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to wash in Siloam, and here I am. I can see. And they'd say, well, where is he now? We, we need to find out more about this guy. We, we don't know anything about him. And the man says, I don't know. He's gone. They are utterly clueless. Neighbors don't have a clue. You don't have to go to an unreached people group to find people who are clueless. They're in your class at school. They're in college. They're at work. They live on your street, and they live all around here. One of the wisest things that was said to me 16 years ago when we came here was by Mary Windell. Mary said to me, when people were saying people around here are close to the gospel, she said, no, they're not. She said, they're questioning. She kept saying to me, Neil, people around here are questioning. 
But the problem is we don't get out there with the answers. If we know Christ, then we are the light of the world. Did you notice that when Jesus was talking to his disciples in verses 4 and 5? He said, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But you see in verse 4, as long as it is day, I must do the work? No, we. And in Matthew's gospel says, we are the light of the world. Jesus says, you go out as light and point people to me. I wonder this week who you're going to meet, who you're going to be with. Who could you point as the light of Jesus shines from your life to theirs? Bruce has already said it's not just the work for missionaries. It's not just the work for people with unique gifts. It's the work of us all. We're all commissioned. Jesus says to you, go, make disciples of all nations. As much as he does to me, as much as he does to Bruce and Jan, he says to you, go, this week, do your bit. Shine the light and see what happens. So the first group here are clueless. But the second here are the spineless parents. Um, the Pharisees bring the man in, uh, brought by the neighbors, and they talk with him. They've already decided Jesus can't be who he says he is because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He breaks the rules. Um, and so they decide what must have happened is a trick. It's quite a simple trick. Um, Basically, Jesus has done the swap-a-beggar trick. So you basically, you pick one who's blind, you pay him off to go to another town, and then you whip out another one who looks a bit like him and go, ta-da! Second story about Isaac today. It reminds me of a magic show that Isaac did when he was four. Isaac brought all his toys into the garden and put them on the decking. Got me and his mum to sit down and said, I'm going to make all my toys disappear. This I had to see. So he had his magic wand, all well equipped for this occasion, said some magic words, and then said, now close your eyes. <laughs> so we did. And I remember, because the tricycle went first, and there were some steps beside the decking, and I could hear four-year-old Isaac dragging the tricycle down and behind the steps, puffing as he came back and going, now you can open your eyes. And we went, wow, that's amazing. And with that encouragement, it carried on for most of the afternoon. And Anna said, oh, said, that was just a fantastic magic show. That was so good. It was absolutely amazing. And then Liza went, well, not really. I just put all the toys down there. So he pretty much told us how he'd done his trick. And the Pharisees, you see, had decided Jesus must have done something similar. He must have just swapped one for another. And so they call in the man's parents. Who can identify this, this man better than his mum and dad? So they call them in. It says, verse 18, they did not believe he was blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? So there's two sets of questions. Is it really him? And if it is, how does he see? And they're prepared to answer the first question. We know he is our son and that he was born blind. They're prepared to say that. That's true. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Kind of throw him under the bus. 
Why? Well, we're told. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why they said what they said. It seems that they knew. They deliberately wouldn't tell the truth about what had happened with Jesus. Let me tell you this. It's always been hard to follow Jesus. It's never been easy. It's never been without a cost. There's never been a time where it's just been a kind of way of making your life better. If that's what you think Jesus came to do, you've not got it at all. Jesus came to make your life harder. In this world, you're going to have trouble, Jesus said. We'll come to that in about three months' time. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And you see, when it came to that choice, the man's parents, who you think might be thrilled, make the choice of saying, well, we're not going to get chucked out of the synagogue. We're going to lose all our friends. We're going to lose everything we know. We're not prepared to pay that cost. You know, there's a cost to following Jesus. Some of you pay it in your families every day because family members don't believe what you believe and they don't support you. They give you a really hard time. Some of you are going to pay that price and you are paying it in your workplace. Even at the moment, there are people in our church facing that in their workplace because they will not bend with the culture. There's a cost. Will we be spineless or will we stand with Jesus? Third reaction. The Pharisees are utterly ruthless. They summon the guy back again. They've decided that Jesus is a sinner. But the man just sticks to his story. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now see. What did he do? They said, how did he open your eyes? They believe there must be more to this story. Jesus can't have done what he said. He answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? I love how cheeky he gets at this point. This is some of my favorite stuff. And then the next line, just when you think it can't get any worse. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, you can imagine the steam coming out of their ears. The last thing they want to be is disciples of Jesus. They say, you're this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he came from cross. And I love this guy at this point. He's the only calm one in the room. He says, let's just try some logic, shall we? Let's just reason it through. Let's begin where you are and see where it leads. He says, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We've established that. That's fact number one. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. You've been saying that all afternoon. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody, not in the whole of the Old Testament, has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Incredible presentation to these religious leaders. They should have backed down, but do they? To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth, picking up on something that the disciples thought at the beginning and Jesus said was rubbish. They just say, you're a sinner and you were from the day you were born. How dare you lecture us? Bang! And they boot him out of the synagogue and he's on his own. And it seems in a way that he's paid a very high price, doesn't it? 
till you reach the end of the story. Look at verses 39 onwards. Jesus says, for judgment I've come into this world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were them heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. You see, there is something much worse than being kicked out of religion club. There's something much worse even than losing family and friends and even your career. Jesus said, I came for judgment into this world. And know this here this morning. If you don't turn to Christ, you are under the judgment of God Almighty. And you may have the most wonderful life now or the most miserable life now. It makes no difference. If you don't know Christ, if you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other way that you can be saved from hell itself and separation from God forever. For judgment, Jesus came into this world to separate those who will believe in him from those who do not. This world has a hat full of religion. And it did in Jesus' day. Religion isn't what saves. Religion is one of the biggest barriers between us and God. It's man-made and it's rubbish. To hell with it. What we need is Jesus. And without him, we're lost. These guys were blind. They thought they could see, but they were utterly blind and they were lost. And they were facing a lost eternity without Jesus. They threw out the one man in the room who was sharing the good news with them because they didn't want to hear it. Please, don't let that happen to you. Don't leave here today unsure. Walk out that door with Jesus, with him in your heart, with him in your life, with him. You see, you've got a wonderful shepherd savior who's looking for you here this morning. He knew you'd be here. And he loves you with all of his heart. Do you see what happens in this story? Jesus heard. He was human. And he heard they'd thrown out the man who had been born blind. And do you know what he does next? He went and he found him. There's no story in the Bible of the enthusiastic sheep who went looking for the shepherds. There's just one story, and it's this. There is a great shepherd, a good shepherd of the sheep, and he goes looking for people like you and people like you and people like you and people like you. He's looking for you. And he's come for you here this morning just as he comes to this blind man. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, bear this in mind. The guy has never yet seen Jesus. You remember that? When did he receive his faith and his sight? Jesus said to him with mud on his eyes, make your way through Jerusalem, down into the rocky pool, and your eyes are going to be washed and you'll be opened and you'll see. So he didn't know who was talking to him. He had heard his voice, but he had never seen his face. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the one with all authority, he says? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The face you now see, that's the face of God Almighty. The voice you now hear, it's the voice of God Almighty. And the man falls on his face and says, I believe. And he worships him.
I was a very ordinary teenager. But something very extraordinary happened to me aged 17 years old. I was in my bedroom revising for my history A-level when the Lord opened my eyes to see Jesus. For the first time in my life, I understood that Jesus came for me, that I was a sinner in need of saving grace, that there was no love for Jesus in my heart and I needed it to be full of it. And I cried out to Jesus across that weekend and he came and he made his home in my heart. What about you? Have you had that moment where you realized Jesus came for you? He didn't just come for the sin of the world, he came for you. Have you had that moment where you've experienced his love and grace and truth in your life? Can you say with the blind man, this I know, I was blind, but now, now I can see. If you can, go well, because you are a sheep of the good shepherd. And he will never leave you or forsake you in this life or the next. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing story of this courageous man born blind, saved entirely by grace and then transformed entirely by grace. Oh Lord, for those of us who know you here, may we be more willing to tell our story. However ordinary our story is, it is extraordinary because it's brought us into the kingdom of God eternally. Oh Lord, give us courage. Help us to be like this man, whatever the cost, to speak up for Jesus. And for those here this morning who haven't had that encounter yet, that moment where Jesus has broken through the walls of their heart, Father, I pray that even right now, you will be doing that saving, cleansing, powerful work of redeeming grace, that in a moment's time when we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me for the first time in this place, there will be some who will be able to sing that with the top of their voice, with all of their heart, because they know finally it's true. They're safe. Safe with Jesus. So Father, we pray that you would give us courage to follow where you lead, a love for you that doesn't get changed by our circumstances, but grows through them, and that we would be light in this dark world, for we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.